hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. There is a danger to telling stories. Some of you will recognize that. They're only as true as the sources you have for the stories. If people lie to you or pass something off as fiction and you pass, and I come along and tell it as fact, then you can recognize that instantly there's a problem. And so not only that, but we as humans, our memories are faulty. I'll talk about that more later on. And sometimes we get the details mixed up or we just don't remember at all. And then there's always the tendency to exaggerate. But we work very hard checking multiple sources to make sure these stories are true. If you don't believe that stories can get mixed up, study the four Gospels very carefully and you'll note the inconsistencies in the accounts of the Savior's life. They don't all say the same thing on the same story. Nonetheless, if we are careful and check as many sources as we can and then trust in that spirit as best we can, and if we will stand on the high ground, especially when it comes to church history, and survey the facts from a broad perspective, we can find great treasures, stories buried in the journals of our ancestors. I was recently doing some research for Royce Veter and on his family when I came across this choice experience from one of his ancestors. I checked and rechecked. This is the story as told by the descendants of Margaret Crawford of a most unusual event in somewhere between 1841, 42, maybe early 43. Margaret lived in Lanarkshire, Scotland. In those days, the 1840s, people relied heavily on the burning of coal for cooking and for heat and so forth. Well, as you know, burning coal, it can quickly turn everything black. Edinburgh used to be known as Old Riki, meaning the old place that stunk. Well, in the Crawford home, they had a large fireplace at one end of a low ceiling room where the family did most of their cooking. Now, there were large deposits of chalk in the hills nearby, which could be ground up, mixed with water to make a functional whitewash that was used to paint the walls, cover up all that soot. It was Margaret's job as the oldest daughter to do the painting. According to the account of Margaret's granddaughter, and I am quoting, she had just finished her task, meaning painting the walls, and was admiring the snow-white walls and hoping it would not have to be done again very soon. A knock came at the door, and she went and opened it and let in what seemed to be a beggar. He walked into the room and looked at the girl and at the mother and the white walls. He stood a moment and gazed steadily at Margaret. He then walked to the fireplace, picked up a piece of charcoal, went to the white walls and began to write. The mother and daughter looked on in speechless amazement. 
No one had uttered a word since the appearance of this strange person. Then both Margaret and her mother began to remonstrate at having the walls all marked up with black charcoal. But he would not quit and seemed to know nothing of what they were saying. He continued writing until he had covered the whole wall from top to bottom. When he had finished, he walked from the room, never saying a word. End of quote. According to another family account, when the stranger had finished, he went outside quickly. Margaret and her mother went out right after him, but the stranger was nowhere to be seen. Nor had the children playing out there seen the stranger. Margaret and her mother went back inside to see what the man had written. Turned out, it was a message to Margaret, declaring that, quote, Margaret was going to be visited by a young man who was teaching a new and strange religion. This young man was from the New World and had crossed many waters to teach her their religion. She would accept their new religion, and some of her family members would, but others would not, and she would suffer persecution by joining it. The young man, who was of her own nationality, Scottish, would return to her home, then he would come again to her land and take her as his wife across the many waters. There, in the new world, still quoting, they would build a home and have a great posterity, end of quote. Well, upon deciphering the message written on the wall, the family laughed, made fun of it, just a fairy tale. However, not long after that, a young man by the name of James Houston, originally from Paisley, Scotland, who had gone to America, joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and then was called as a missionary for the church out of Nauvoo and assigned to Scotland. He came and taught Margaret the gospel, baptized her in the River Clyde, and then returned and married her shortly thereafter. After Elder Houston's release in 1845, the couple sailed for America, arriving in Nauvoo, 1846, just in time for the great exodus of the saints to the Rocky Mountains. James and Margaret Houston settled in St. George and were blessed with nine children. The descendants of Margaret believe that it was one of the three Nephites who came and scrawled graffiti all over their wall. That's the first story. Continuing on, I mentioned a few minutes ago the failings of memory. Contrary to what you may think, a weak memory is not a sign of age, it's a sign of mortality. In the next life, we don't struggle with memory. We remember everything perfectly. It's here in mortality where things drain away like water through a sieve. We all forget, so much so that the Lord goes to great lengths to continually renew and refresh our memories of things that must never be forgotten. But alas, if we remove ourselves from those reminders, we are likely to forget things we shouldn't and suffer great pain. The following was an almost laughable example of forgetting something I shouldn't have. Not almost. It was downright hilarious, though painful at the time. It's back in the days when I was 
a seminary teacher. I got really curious, and I looked up rock and stone in the topical guide of my scriptures. I learned some interesting things. First, I learned that Christ was often referred to as the rock of salvation and the only sure foundation of righteousness. That seemed a fitting metaphor because, well, like a rock, he's strong, firm, unchanging, and enduring, capable of weathering the storms and bearing our weight. Second, I noticed that when the Lord and his people entered into covenant relationships, there were usually stones piled or fitted in the form of altars or pillars, which served as continual reminders of these covenants and how they should be as enduring and unchanging as the stones themselves. So why is it then, given all these qualities about Jehovah, that God's people over the last 6,000 years have so frequently fallen into apostasy and been destroyed? Well, herein lies the story. I found the answer to that question, literally, the hard way. One day in seminary, in order to teach the young people this principle about Christ, the rock, our Redeemer, I brought into my classroom a huge square lava rock, probably weighing about 200 pounds, a big chunk of basalt that one of my more gnarly students carried into the room for me. Using the rock, I explained that because of the nature of this type of stone, its strength and durability, it was often used to build foundations for homes for many generations. We then discussed how the Savior was like that stone. And all day long, I'm jumping up and down on that stone, and, and you know, just it was the focus of the whole day, that he is sure and solid, unchanging, able to be the foundation of our eternal house of faith. However, I explained, for those who will not trust the Savior and follow him, he, the rock, becomes a continual nuisance. He becomes the stone in your path on a dark night that causes you to stumble, or worse yet, falls on you and crushes you when you least expect it. The Savior is the stone that will not go away and cannot be avoided. Well, I, I used that stock, rock throughout the day to make my point. And you know, looking back, well, I think the lesson went all right. Late that night after teaching an evening class, I turned off the lights in my office and strode quickly toward the exit at the back of my classroom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you guessed it. Suddenly, something caught both my shins, causing me to stumble and fall headlong into the rock. I had forgotten the rock. I lay there on my classroom floor, wounded, bleeding, and in intense pain, wishing, oh, wishing that I had remembered the stone. I'm not kidding. It took weeks for that wound to heal. Just like ancient Israel, I had forgotten him who must not be forgotten nor ignored. I hadn't. I hadn't meant to. I just forgot for a moment. The psalmist once said, 
Hear my cry, O God, attend unto my prayer. From the end of the earth will I cry unto thee when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. The older I get, the more I understand what President Nelson meant. Our efforts to remember the Savior need to be ever more intentional, more deliberate, and it takes great sacrifice to fill our hearts, minds, and souls with the word of the Lord and the spirit of the Lord all day long. He said, we simply cannot rely upon that which we bump into on social media. Don't forget the rock. Next story. I make no apology the two most important duties I feel in these devotionals is to bear testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ and of living prophets and declare the truth and the power of the doctrine and principles they taught. You know, the day will come when these devotionals will end, and I will be, as it should be, completely forgotten. But if you are drawn closer to God by what happens here through the medium of the Spirit, then all is right and as it should be. This next story is one of those that bears testimony in a sweet way. John and Mary Alice Johnson, otherwise known as Elsa, lived in Hiram, Ohio in early 1831. They were prosperous farmers with a large family and a good farm. In January 1831, Ezra Booth, a friend and minister, visited them with news of a new prophet and a new religion in Kirtland. In addition, the Johnsons learned that one of their sons, 19-year-old Lyman Johnson, had joined that church in Kirtland, and then he came home with the copy of the Book of Mormon. The Johnsons and Ezra Booth spent an evening studying that book. They concluded, as so many others did, that they would go to Kirtland to meet Joseph Smith for themselves. Now, Mrs. Johnson, Elsa, had a crippled rheumatic arm that she could not use. She couldn't raise it above the level of her elbow. According to one Ohio historian, the party visited Smith, I'm quoting, partly out of curiosity and partly to see for themselves what there might be in the new doctrine. During the interview, the conversation turned on the subject of supernatural gifts, such as were conferred in the days of the apostles. When someone said, here is Mrs. Johnson with a lame arm, has God given any power to men now on earth to cure her? few moments later, when the conversation had turned in another direction, still quoting, Smith, Joseph Smith, arose and walking across the room and taking Mrs. Johnson by the hand, said in the most solemn and impressive manner, Woman, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command thee to be whole. And then immediately left the room. The company were awestricken at the infinite presumption of the man, still quoting, and the calm assurance with which he spoke. Now this 
historian, Ohio historian, not a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, said, the sudden mental and moral shock, I know not how better to explain the well-attested fact, electrified the rheumatic arm. Mrs. Johnson at once lifted it with ease, and on her return home the next day, she was able to do her washing without difficulty or pain. End of quote. Well, there was another witness living in Kirtland who recorded that same event. Now, again, this is a situation where you've got two different witnesses, slightly different accounts. Philo Dibble was there, and he left this account of the miracle. He wrote, quote, I saw them as they passed my house on their way. She, Elsa Johnson, went to Joseph and requested him to heal her. Joseph asked her if she believed the Lord was able to make him an instrument in healing her arm. She said she believed the Lord was able to heal her arm. Joseph put her off until the next morning when he met her at Brother Newell K. Whitney's house. There were eight persons present, one a Methodist preacher, that'd be Ezra Booth, and one a doctor. Joseph took her, Elsa, by the hand, prayed in silence a moment, pronounced her, her arm whole in the name of Jesus Christ, and turned and left the room. The preacher asked her if her arm was whole, and she straightened it out and replied, it's as good as the other. The question was then asked if it would remain whole. Joseph, hearing this, answered and said, it is as good as the other and as liable to accident as the other. The doctor who witnessed this miracle, Philo said, came to my house the next morning and related the circumstance to me. He attempted to account for it by his false philosophy, saying that Joseph took her by the hand and seemed to be in prayer and pronounced her arm whole in the name of Jesus Christ, which, I love this, excited her and started perspiration, and that relaxed the cords of her arm. Philo says, I subsequently rented my farm and devoted all my time to the interest of the church, holding myself in readiness to take Joseph wherever he wished to go. That's one of the earliest stories I heard of the prophet Joseph Smith and the power and miracles he performed. Now, thank the Lord for eyewitnesses, people who were there and saw for without them, we now, as moderns, would not have a history, a past, or even a basis for faith in the future. Thank the Lord for witnesses. This next story is one of those unusual stories of a most unusual witness. It is one of the most sacred sites in the church, the Peter Whitmer cabin in Fayette, New York. It was there that the Book of Mormon translation was completed. It was there that three men were chosen as special witnesses and granted the opportunity to converse with an angel, view the plates, and hear the voice of God in regards to the Book of Mormon. It was also there that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was organized April 6th, 
1830, and many other great revelations were received. Considering the incalculable souls eternally blessed by what happened in this place, truly, Fayette, New York, and the Peter Whitmer cabin is a holy place where the mercy of God was abundant. But there was a day when this glorious future almost didn't happen here. Joseph Smith came to Fayette in June 1829 at the encouragement of Peter and Mary Whitmer, whose farm and home it was. It was their generosity that opened up an upper room in the Whitmer cabin in which Joseph and Oliver could translate. It was the food at the Whitmer table and a place to sleep that sustained life while the work progressed. With Joseph in time came Emma and Oliver, as well as an innumerable train of visitors and the curious. And all of this weighted burden, weighted the burden on Mother Mary Whitmer, who felt the responsibility to take care of them all. One day, and this account is a little different perhaps than the one you may have heard. This is based on the latest research done by Royal Skousen of BYU. According to what Royal found, one day Mother Whitmer was particularly tired. She went outside to attend to the evening chores and milk the cow. She saw Joseph and Oliver nearby skating rocks across the duck pond, an activity they often did to relax and relieve the tedium of translation. It annoyed her, and she thought to herself that they might just as well chop some wood or carry a bucket of water as skate rocks. And according to her family, Mother Whitman was about to order them from the home. She came out of the barn carrying two buckets of milk when she was met by a stranger, an old man, heavy set, with a knapsack on his back. First, she was frightened, but when he spoke to her in a kind and friendly tone and began to explain to her the nature of the work which was going on in her house, she was filled with inexpressible joy and satisfaction. He then untied his knapsack and showed her a bundle of plates, which in size and appearance corresponded with the description subsequently given by the witnesses to the Book of Mormon. This strange person turned the leaves of the book of plates over, leaf after leaf, and also showed her the engravings upon them, after which he told her to be patient and faithful in bearing her burden a little longer, promising that if she would do so, she would be blessed and her reward would be sure if she proved faithful to the end. The personage then suddenly vanished with the place, and where he went, she could not tell. From that moment, Mother Whitmer was enabled, according to her family, to perform her household duties with comparative ease, and she felt no more inclination to murmur because her lot was hard. End of quote. I know you've heard this. Out of small and simple things, great things are brought to pass. And I might add, sometimes in the most remote and out-of-the-way places do they happen. I want to tell you of an event that virtually 
all the mortal world failed to recognize at the time. An event <laughs> that changed the world forever and even changed your life in a powerfully meaningful and eternal way. Here's the story. I sat in the ruins of the Hippodrome in the ancient city of Caesarea Maritima on the Mediterranean coast in modern-day Israel, looking out into the beautiful blue of the Mediterranean as I listened to a gifted teacher and friend, Michael Wilcox, relate a powerful story. He described how in that very city, Caesarea, nearly 2,000 years ago, a man named Cornelius, a Roman centurion, experienced a vision from God. This is a Roman, a Gentile, a vision from God in which he was told, thy prayers are heard. The angel then said, now, send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do, end of quote. Cornelius, the Roman soldier, responded immediately and from Caesarea sent three of his most trusted men to Joppa to fetch Peter. Well, the next day, about noon, Peter went up on the roof of the house to pray. He became very hungry and asked for food. While they were preparing it, a vision was opened to Peter in which he saw a great sheet let down from heaven full of all manner of beasts. A voice said to Peter, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, What God hath cleansed, that call thou not common. This vision was repeated three times, and Peter had no idea what it meant. Just then, the servants of Cornelius, the Roman, came to the door, Simon the Tanner, and the Spirit whispered to Peter that he was to go with them, for the Lord had sent them. The next day at Caesarea, Peter walked in to meet Cornelius. Cornelius fell down and worshipped him, but Peter took him up, saying, Stand up. I myself also am a man. Peter then explained to the assembled crowd of Gentiles that as a Jew, it was unlawful for him to keep company with them. But as God had instructed, he was not to judge any man as common or unclean. I ask, therefore, Peter said, for what ye have sent for me? Cornelius then related his vision, and suddenly Peter understood that his world, the world, was about to change. Of a truth, he said, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted of him. To that point, please consider this. The blessings of Christ's gospel had only been for Abraham's children, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, for a small segment of the Jewish population 
They were the only ones God's authorized representatives had gone to. For that matter, Christ's ministry was only over a distance north to south of about 100 to 120 miles and east to west, a distance of maybe 50 to 60 miles. That's all the further Jesus had gone among the lost sheep of the house of Israel during his mortal ministry. But all of that was about to change. It was a new day and a new age, and Peter, in a measure, understood that. Peter began to preach the gospel of Christ to them. And while he yet spake, the Holy Ghost fell upon Cornelius and that crowd of Gentiles, and they were converted and baptized and manifested the signs of the Holy Spirit. The first Christians, not of Israel. That day changed the world forever. As I sat there in the Hippodrome listening to Michael tell that story, it struck me in the heart with great power that it started here in the very city where I was, in the small, beautiful, coastal city of Caesarea, in the tiny nation of Israel, that the gospel first went to the Gentile nations. And from here where I sat, right here, the gospel of Jesus Christ crossed the Mediterranean, literally set sail from where I was sitting, and went forth unto every nation, kindred, tongue, and people across the generations until it reached the ears of a heathen, Gentile, red-headed kid of 18 years of age in Idaho, 2,000 years later. In recognition of the place, the moment, the history, and the men in our company, we all came out of the seats right there on the track of the Hippodrome, on the shores of the Mediterranean, where it all began for those of us with Gentile blood and sang at the top of our lungs, ye elders of Israel. I hope you can appreciate in a small measure how that moment with Cornelius and Peter changed your world too. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week. <laughs>